Genesis chapter 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he's your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes, and she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. The angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not. For God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand. For I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help. Lord, you have contained in your word to us through your servant Moses, by your spirit's power, Christ. Help us to see Christ. Lift up our eyes that we may see Christ and him glorified. We may see our own need for Christ. Turn us from ourselves into Christ our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Augustine says of the Bible, see if I can remember it, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. He said it in Latin, sounds better in English. But the, the idea there, and I've noticed this, you've noticed this too, is that we've been studying Genesis, is that all of the Bible is packed into Genesis. So if we say the Old Testament or the New is in the Old concealed, in Genesis you have it even more tightly concealed. I imagine it like a, uh, for some of you who are 
very good at going on vacation and you vacuum seal your clothing in order to, to fit it in the suitcase. Genesis is, is like that in many ways. It's, it's like a suitcase where everything is so tightly vacuum sealed and compressed and shrunk down that you can fit more and more and more in. And I think all of the themes of Scripture are contained here in the Genesis suitcase. And so one of the things that keeps happening to me when I read and study the text for the coming week is that other Bible passages come to my mind that aren't from Genesis. I did, I've done this the last two weeks in a row, and I figure, you know what, let's just let's keep it going. Uh, the, the rest of the Bible is like the unpacked version of what's in Genesis. So sometimes it's easier to, in order to understand what's in Genesis, to look at the unpacked version. Right? Is that my t-shirt or is that my button-up? Well, you unpack it first. and Oh, okay, that's grace. It's, it's, it's better to identify what is so tight, or packed so tightly by looking later on in, in the scriptures. So we're going to do that again this week. There are two bits of wisdom found elsewhere in the scriptures that ring true in this passage. The first is from Proverbs 3, and you know the, the heart of this passage, but I'll read the whole thing. Solomon says, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. And then he says, this is the one that we know from when we were children. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. I believe that with, uh, without a doubt, Solomon experienced that in his own life. He learned that lesson in his own life. But I also believe that he came to that through studying Abraham's life. The Lord is trustworthy. His word is trustworthy. And we aren't so much trustworthy. And so we should trust in the Lord and not in ourselves. And Solomon knew that from his life. He learned it from Abraham's life. The second whole Bible truth that is born out of this passage that we see unpacked later on is from Psalm 37. Here it is again. Trust in the Lord. But this time the psalmist says, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. So the the big flashing sign for both of those is trust in the Lord. And we've been praying that this morning. Trust in the Lord. But there are different applications from Proverbs and Psalms. Solomon says, trust in the Lord and not your own understanding. David says, trust in the Lord and so delight in him. So we're going to see both of those in our passage this morning Trusting the Lord, not leaning on our understanding, and trusting the Lord and delighting in Him. So look, look with me at the first section of our passage, Genesis 21, and notice, and maybe you saw this already, the repeated words and phrases that just jump off the page. Look at verse 1, at the first part, the Lord visited Sarah as He had said. Now look at the second part of verse 1, and the Lord did to Sarah as He had promised. You see that? 
Repeated theme already. And again, it's in verse 2. And Sarah conceived and bore Abram his son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. And then verse 3, Abraham called the name of a son who was born to him, who Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Now, it doesn't say there, as God had said, but who was the one who told them what to name the boy? The Lord did. So he named, he is named as God said he would be. If we're reading between the lines, we're seeing that same message as God said. And then in verse 4, Abraham circumcised his son when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. The Spirit, through Moses, is proclaiming for us the trustworthiness and the power of God's Word. And it is loud and clear, isn't it? God did what He said He would do. And you can almost almost feel the mood of the way that Moses has written this. That the the birth of baby Isaac, this long-awaited birth, this prophesied from chapter 12, really from chapter 3 of Genesis all the way to here, We've been waiting for this, and then the day comes, and it's almost like, okay, it's an afterthought. As if, as if Isaac's birth was so sure to happen, based on what God had said, that, that when it happens, it has all the fanfare of sun rising in the morning. Of course the sun rose. It always does. Of course a baby was born to Abraham and Sarah. God said he would be. And his name is Isaac. And Abraham circumcised him on the eighth day because God said he would be. Now, who is shocked by this? Well, Sarah is. She's kind of funny. Look at verse 7. Who would have said to Abraham and Sarah that that Sarah would nurse children, yet I born him a son in his old age? Who would have said? Well, Sarah... God would have said that. And he said that again and again and again. And and Moses is showing us that again and again and again. And we as the readers of Genesis 21, we're almost laughing at this point. Because from our perspective, we know the story, or many of us know the story. We, We know that all along, especially if we're the Israelites reading this for the first time, we're the Israelites, we knew where we came from. So we've known all along that God would provide a child to this couple. So even that that question of Sarah's is meant to point us back to the very clear message of Abraham's life, that God is faithful to his promises. God did what he said he would do. God did what he said he would do. God did what he said he would do. Again and again and again. And this has been consistent throughout Genesis from the very first verse. God said, let there be light. Well, a couple of verses in. God said, there be light, and there was light. And then in chapter 2, he said, disobedience would lead to death. And there was disobedience, and there was death. Lots of it in chapter 5. And then in chapter 3, he said he would provide an offspring to the woman who would crush the serpent. And there was an offspring to the woman, and another, and another, and another, on down the line. And, and so we're beginning to see God's promise take shape. And in chapter 12 of Genesis, God said to Abraham he would give him blessing and protection and a nation and land. And here in Genesis 21, we're seeing more and more and more of that fulfilled. That nation that God said would come from Abraham will come from this offspring. And here he is, little baby Isaac. 
And the lesson for God's people who first received the book of Genesis is that if God could bring Isaac to 100-year-old Abraham and 90-year-old Sarah, then God can certainly fulfill the rest of his promises. That's the encouragement to them. So they, they are there on the, on the outskirts of the promised land about to go in, and they have seen God's faithfulness to his promises from the very beginning, and so they are encouraged. The promise of land that they are about to receive the promise of a nation that they are about to become, the promise of blessing to the nations, God will fulfill all of that because he was faithful to Abraham and Sarah to bring that child. And so they are reminded again and again throughout all of Moses' writings, all the way through to Deuteronomy, the word of God is powerful. The word of God is effective. The word of God is trustworthy. God is always faithful to his word. Therefore, Trust in him. And it's a very simple lesson, isn't it? But God's faithfulness to his word in Abraham's story is in contrast, direct contrast to Abraham and Sarah. This couple who sometimes seem to, believe, seem to be believing God's promises and sometimes seem not to be believing God's promises. And even though they are in the hall of faith in Hebrews, even though they are examples to us of what it means to trust in the Lord throughout the New Testament and throughout the Scriptures, the reality is that Abraham and Sarah are fickle and capricious and they usually lean on their own understanding. The only thing consistent about their faith is their inconsistency in living it out. Just last week, what happened last week? Just last week, Abraham has played Sarah off as his sister again. And, but the order of the text, the way that, that Moses has written this, led by the Spirit, it's intentional. Because just in case we forget that the heart of Abraham is fickle and sometimes he trusts in himself more than the Lord, we are given a reminder of that reality almost every other chapter, aren't we? But through it all, the entire story of Abraham, through the entire story, the Lord remains steady and unchanging. He has remained faithful and true to his word. Paul says in, in 2 Timothy, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Nothing we have seen, nothing can stand in the way of God's faithfulness to his own word. No human sin, no human scheming from Abraham, no angelic sin, no demonic rebellion, no rulers of the earth, no rulers throughout the cosmos or the unseen realm, nothing, no one can thwart God's plan of redemption. Because if God says it, it happens. God's word is powerful and true even to us. Even if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He is as true to his word as he is to himself because as we find out later, he is the word. All of that sounds well and good, doesn't it? It's a, a nice chicken soup for the soul moment and we can all nod our heads in agreement and say, yes, yes, God is faithful to his word. He promised Abraham and Sarah a child, and sure enough, exactly as he said it would happen, it happened. God brought them a child according to his promise. 
That's incur- it's meant to be encouraging. It is encouraging. The question, though, is how do we get this from the Bible to our hearts and our lives? Because we know intellectually, we know from the, the, you know, the, the commentaries, we know from our theology textbooks, we know that God is faithful to his promises. That's who he is. But it, it can feel mystical. It, it can feel out of our grasp. And we're going to come back to that in a moment. But this story isn't only about God's faithfulness. So as we think about God's faithfulness and think about wanting to make it real for us, we need to understand this story is also about, just like I said, it's also about Abraham and Sarah's doubt. And their doubt wasn't just theoretical. It wasn't just mental doubts. It wasn't just an idea. Their doubts became expressed in real life, didn't they? Their doubts led to the Hagar episode, which brought forth Ishmael, a real person, into the world. So while, while God was working things out according to his promises in his own good time, Abraham and Sarah were coming up with a backup plan, what we're going to call this morning a just-in-case plan. And I'm going to say that again and again, a just-in-case plan. Just in case God doesn't do as he said he would. And here is where that passage begins to creep closer to our hearts because we have those We have those just-in-case plans. Maybe it's not a spare kid. (laughs) But we do have backup plans, just in case God isn't faithful to keep his promises. And in our minds, we think this is just good planning, right? Like planning for retirement. It's like insurance. We have fire insurance where we live just in case there's a fire. This seems like a good idea. There's nothing wrong with our just-in-case plans because they give us a sense of comfort. They give us a sense of control over the here and now. And they, they, they help to alleviate our fears of the unknown. But the lesson that we learned from Abraham and from Isaac and from Jacob and Israel and Moses and prophets and Jesus and the apostles all the way through the Bible, the lesson we learn is that our just-in-case plans are not morally neutral. They're not just backup plans like insurance or a generator in case the power company fails. Our alternative plans, and I, I, you'll see what I mean by this in just a little bit, our alternative plans are actually an offense to God. Let me just bring it home for you. Let's suppose you were a woman engaged to be married, but just in case your fiancé doesn't follow through on the wedding, you decide it was a good idea to have a just-in-case boyfriend. That's not a morally neutral decision, is it? Or if you are a, 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 a husband, you're on your way home from work, and your wife has called you and said she has made a wonderful meal, and you, just in case, stop and pick up some fast food. On the way home, you get home and you're filled and she says, well, I told you I, told you I was going to make this meal and here it is, it's all on the table. And you say, yeah, but just in case, I thought maybe it would be a good idea to, to fill up ahead of time. Which is to say, I don't trust you, isn't it? It's not, our just in case plans are not morally neutral. So it is with God. Our just in case plans, our backup plans to God's faithfulness are not morally neutral to God. 
In our scripture reading this morning, we read from Galatians chapter 4. And in that passage, Paul brings out the lesson of Sarah and Hagar, same from our Genesis 21 passage. And he tells that each of these women bore to Abraham a child, just as we see in our text. And Sarah bore a child according to the promise, God's promise, in spirit. And Hagar bore a child according to the flesh. Now, a child born according to the flesh, what that means is Ishmael is the fruit of Abraham's efforts according to what he could do on his own without God, just in case God isn't faithful. Abraham had Ishmael as a backup plan. Paul then tells the Galatians that they're doing the same thing. They're using circumcision and the law as a backup plan to Christ. Christ is literally the child of the promise, the long-awaited one. He is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. He's the offspring through whom the nations are blessed. But the Galatians, just in case Christ's finished work isn't what God said, the Galatians are adding to it. Paul's telling them that their actions to justify themselves before God are like Abraham's actions that brought about Ishmael. You'll have to wait for Pastor Saunders to get to Galatians 4 to discover the ways that we seek to justify ourselves. We have just-in-case plans for justification. And they may not be circumcision, but we do have some heart issues to address in this arena. But we're going to let Pastor Saunders preach that text. I will not preach it for him. What I want to address to you this morning is not so much our just-in-case plans for justification or right standing before God, those extra things that we may want to add. Rather, I want to see that our just-in-case plans are often for joy and for fulfillment in this life. Because you see, in Genesis 21, the second major theme that we see here is that true joy is found in God's promises. True joy is found in God's promises. Now, to catch this, we have to remember what Isaac's name means. His name means he laughs. So we're going to read verses 5 and 6 with his name properly translated. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son, he laughs, was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears me will laugh over me. This, This laughter is true joy in seeing the promise of God fulfilled And the promise of God is the child. So there's a a double meaning there for us. Our author is so tightly winding God's promises with our joy in seeing God's promises fulfilled that they become inseparable and they take on the same name. Isaac, he laughs. Abraham and Sarah have tried on their own to find joy and fulfillment and protection and children outside of God's promises. And what has that brought them? Sorrow and trouble, right? Sorrow and trouble again and again. But God, in his fulfilled promise to them, has brought laughter. Sarah says God has made laughter for them. And here's that double meaning. He has made the child. Certainly God has made this child. He has made the child whose name is laughter. And he has made joy in their hearts. And the two are inseparable. Because God's promises bring joy. The fulfilled promises of God bring joy to the life of Sarah and Abraham. 
The faithfulness of God here is this deep, satisfying laughter. Real laughter, the deep kind. The kind that makes you cry. And if we back up and we, and we look at that and we see Isaac is laughter, Isaac is fulfilled promise, and we back up and we look at the whole Bible, we see that Isaac is the type, he's the shadow of the true promised offspring who is to come, right? It's not coincidental that the Lord has ordained that the offspring of the promise to Abraham be named laughter to show us that there is, is gladness in what the Lord provides. Ultimately, the one who is the true offspring, the fulfillment of the type, the fulfillment of the shadow, the substance of the shadow, the one whom God promised would bring blessing to the nations, he is an even greater source of gladness, laughter. And his name is Emmanuel, which means God with us, to which Psalm 16 says, there is gladness in God's presence. And his name is Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. And all over the Psalms, there is joy in the salvation that Yahweh brings and gladness in the salvation that he brings. And Psalm 118 says, the Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are the tents of the righteous. There's joy there. There's laughter there in the fulfillment of God's promises. And his title is the Christ, the anointed king. And Psalm 49 says, Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. All that to say, our true joy, our true happiness is to be found in the true offspring. Jesus, the king, who is salvation from God, the fulfillment of God's promises, who is God himself. But just as Abraham and Sarah had their just-in-case plan for a child, we have our just-in-case plans for finding joy. Just in case Christ doesn't satisfy us. We don't, we don't trust that we can find true joy and gladness in Christ so we delight ourselves in lesser things. So how do we diagnose that? How do we know what lesser things we're delighting in? Well, for, well where do you spend your time? What's the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? What takes priority in your day planner? What would someone else who's looking at your life from the outside because you have your own thoughts and motivations and intents. But what about someone else looking at you from the outside and they see where your time is spent and your energy is spent? What would they say is your reason for being? What would they say brings you joy? Now let's examine your thoughts. What do you look forward to? What are you afraid of? What do you think about? Where does your mind go when you're doing something mindless like washing the dishes, or folding clothes. Now let's examine your media intake. What are you reading? What podcasts are you listening to? What are you watching? Let's think about the things that we hope in. Which one makes you happier? Financial gain or knowledge of Christ? 
Do you find more joy in the stock market or cryptocurrency recovery and a raise at work? Or do you find it in discovering something new about Christ? Do you, do you look forward to more getting to see your grandkids or gathering with the body of Christ? The question is, what are your Ishmael's, isn't it? Name them, not out loud. Name them, though, and prayerfully ask the Lord to put them in their proper place. True joy is found in the promises of God, namely in Christ. But we have these just-in-case plans, these backup plans, don't we? And reading our text this way, and I think this is the way that Paul is, from his inspired perspective, is, is reading this. I think this helps us to understand that what happens in the next part of the text, verses 8 and following, uh, that, that this, is, this is not as harsh as we originally think. Right, so from a historical perspective, we read this, and from a human perspective, it seems really harsh what Abraham and Sarah and the Lord have done to Hagar and Ishmael. Sarah tells Abraham, get rid of this slight woman and her child. So Abraham sends her into the desert with a water bottle and a sandwich baggie. This seems unreasonable to us. But, but let's look more closely. Let's look from Paul's perspective in Galatians, back through that lens on Genesis 21, and look at the ways that, that, that our just-in-case plans, how they must be dealt with, okay? So, so, so you have the child of the promise here, little baby, he laughs, the prototype of Yahweh saves. He's been born finally after years and years and years. He's been born into a family, though, where mom and dad and mom's maid have got themselves into a flesh triangle, and now we have Ishmael to contend with as well. And Ishmael at this point is anywhere from 12 to 16 years old. We don't know exactly. His mother, as you've noticed in the text, has been demoted. She's no longer the maidservant or maid of Sarah. She is now the slave woman. Do you notice that? Go back at chapter 16 and you see her described a little more gently. She was essentially at that time, back in Genesis chapter 16, Sarah's or Sarai, then her helper, her, her mistress. She was the one who maybe laid her clothes out for her. But here in chapter 21, the language has changed. Even in, even in the Hebrew, the word is different. She's the slave woman now. The promised baby named He Laughs is about three years old from what we can tell, and it's time for his weaning Feast. This is, uh, we know from 2 Maccabees, just one of those old Jewish books that isn't in the scriptures, uh, that the, those weaning feasts were around age three. So that might have changed between Abraham's day and the day of the Maccabees, but let's give it a rough three-year-old time. Uh, babies were, were nursed much longer than they are today. So now let's look at verse 9. Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian. Now, his name's not given there, is it? Look at verse 9. Ishmael is identified as the son of Hagar the Egyptian. So he is an outsider. He is a foreigner whom she, Hagar, had born to Abraham. And look what he's doing in verse 9. He's laughing. If we put that in the Hebrew, he's Isaacing. 
So, so what's the big deal? We have a young teenager. He's anywhere from 12 to 16 years old. Mine laugh all the time. They laugh at everything. What's the issue? Well, remember who the true laughter is. Isaac, the child of the promise. Ishmael, though, in his Isaacing, in quotes, is a man-made imitation of the promise. And so Sarah sees him Isaacing. And look at verse 10, cast him out. Get rid of him. He can't be here. And that sounds like that bitter old rivalry from chapter 16 swelling up again. That old rivalry between Hagar and Sarah. After all, Sarah's done this before, hasn't she? She did something very similar right before the baby was born, before Ishmael was born. Hagar was pregnant, and she sent him out, or she asked Abraham to send him out. And he did, and now the baby's born, though, and this same command doesn't settle well with Abraham. He's grown to love this child. It's the son. You see that in the text. It's on account of his son. He, he doesn't want to get rid of his, his boy. This is his son we're talking about. He loves him. doesn't want to send him away. But this time, it isn't Sarah's jealousy alone that has instigated her words. This time, it is the Lord speaking through Sarah. Did you notice that when we were looking in Galatians? It says, does not the scripture say, cast out the slave woman? The scripture is the one saying that, which is to say the Lord is the one saying that. And he's saying it through Sarah here. The Lord is speaking through Sarah. The older son, the the, the issue here is that the older son, if he's not sent away, he will have a right to the inheritance because he's the older son. The inheritance of the promise, which is the land. And that promise can't go to Ishmael. It must go to Isaac, the child of the promise. God's promises, what the Lord is teaching us here, is God's promises cannot be mixed with human effort. There is no mixing of what God has promised he will do on his own with what man does to try and help him. God's promises cannot be mixed with human effort, and so Ishmael must be sent away. So God tells Abraham in verse 12, do what Sarah says. Now this is, there's irony here, because so far, whenever the wife in Genesis has said something to the man, it has led to trouble. The first time Sarah had an idea, that led to this problem to begin with. And Sarah listened, or remember Abraham listened to the voice of his wife and went into Hagar. Remember that? Just as, just as Adam had listened to the voice of his wife. Well, this time Sarah is right, though. And it is right to listen to her. The Lord is speaking through her. She speaks according to the will of God. So God says, listen to her. The one Isaacing cannot inherit with Isaac. The one who is a foe Isaac. The one pretending to be laughter. The imitation of the true laughter cannot stay in the house with the true joy of the Lord. The child born according to the flesh cannot inherit with the child of the promise. He must be cast out. And again, Paul's interpretation is helpful for us, isn't it? Paul says in Galatians 4 that what was actually happening was that the child of the flesh was persecuting the child of the promise. Did you notice that in Galatians when we read it? Paul uses the word persecuting, but Moses, our author here, only uses the word laughter to describe what Ishmael is doing. Mainly because Moses is playing on that ongoing theme of laughter and joy and its imitation. He is a more subtle writer than Paul, put it that way. But when Paul tells us in Galatians that the just-in-case child persecuted the child of the promise, well, then we have a better idea of what's happening. There's persecution happening. It's more than laughter. It's, It's teasing. It's harassing. It's bullying. 
And so now we have a better idea of what's happening because what appears to be laughing is actually much the same as the heart of Cain toward Abel, isn't it? Or what we'll later see is the, the heart of Esau towards Jacob or the brothers of Israel towards Joseph. It's that brotherly rivalry theme happening here in Genesis. And it happens again and again and again. And it doesn't end well whenever that happens. When that rivalry becomes full grown. So that's the textual reality. That's what's likely to happen if Ishmael stays in the home. He's going to hurt the baby. He's going to hurt the boy. So in order to protect Isaac, the Lord sends Ishmael away. But there's a spiritual reality to this as well. And this is what Paul's picking up on. When there is something in our lives that competes with Christ. Just as Ishmael's competing with Isaac for the inheritance. When there's something in our lives that competes with Christ for our hearts, that thing isn't neutral. It's an Ishmael versus Isaac reality. The outworking of the flesh versus the spirit. They cannot coexist in the same heart. So if there's something that you were delighting in outside of Christ, something that you are pursuing that is a constant distraction from your devotion to Christ, that's not a neutral thing. It will persecute the promise in you. Like the older brother persecuting the younger. And Paul's instruction to the Galatians is to cast out the slave woman and her son. Cast out that that working according to the flesh. And, and, And likewise for us, cast out those things which are competing with Christ in our life. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Whatever it is that clings closely to you, that you are seeking to fulfill you outside of Christ, whatever it is that our heart wants to hold on to outside of Christ, cast it away. Put it in its rightful place. And we see the, the struggle with this, with Abraham. Abraham loves his son. A father loves his son. Abraham desired to keep Ishmael nearby. He couldn't stand to see him go. And when we, when we look at this, again, from Paul's perspective, when we take Ishmael to represent our just-in-case cases, our competing affections, when Ishmael is your sense of financial security in the world that, that brings you comfort, or when Ishmael is your love of entertainment that gives you escape that you seek out constantly, or when Ishmael is your work and your sense of accomplishment Realize that none of that is worth comparing to the true joy and contentment that is found in Christ. So what do we do? Well, you take your just-in-case, your man-made joy, and you put it in its rightful place. But we can't just do that, can we? We can't exactly do that if we don't first know the surpassing worth of Christ. If we do not delight in Christ with our whole being, then we cannot entrust to him our Ishmael's. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord first. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. And Abraham's taking this lesson to heart. He needs to trust that if he can let go of his just-in-case, his Ishmael, that the Lord will take care of him. And the, he'll take care of the boy. 
So Abraham listens to God. He packs Ishmael and Hagar, the sack lunch, and a bottle of water, and he sends them away, and off they go, as the Lord said. And here's what's interesting is what we happen, what we see happen when they go out in the wilderness. Because the Lord promised Abraham in verses 12 and 13 that he's going to take care of Ishmael. You let Ishmael go. You cast him out. I'll take care of him is what he's saying. He's saying he's going to make a nation out of him. And as much as Abraham loves Ishmael, what happens here is that he sees there is more to be found in God's promises than in his own efforts. And that seeing God's promise to take care of Ishmael enables Abraham to send Ishmael away. You see what I'm saying there? That might be a little confusing. He's, he's not sending. We read this and we think, man, Abraham, you're sending Ishmael to, to his death. He's not. He's entrusting the boy to the Lord is what he's doing. He's entrusting this work according to his flesh to the Lord. He's putting it in its place. He's sending him to the wilderness with his mom. And we've talked about this before, but these secondary delights in this life, these things that are secondary to the Lord, the things that we make primary, family, hobbies, entertainment, leisure, investments, working around the house, whatever it is, what the Lord tells Abraham to do is trust him, trust his promises first, and he'll take care of Ishmael. Likewise for us, trust the Lord first, delight in Christ first, and entrust everything else to the Lord, and everything else will fall into its rightful place. What that means practically is to go all in on Christ. Don't hedge your bets. As if saying, well, I'm going to pray. I intend to pray right now. But I'm going to keep my smartphone right here just in case I get bored. Just in case. I'm going to seek Christ in the scriptures, but I'm going to do it while I watch this game. I'm going to do that with the TV on, on mute, just in case. Because I don't want to miss something important. What I'm saying is set aside your just-in-case and devote yourself fully to the Lord. It's not easy. It doesn't feel like joy at first. It doesn't feel delightful at first. You're going to feel like something is wrong with you. You're going to be unable to sustain in prayer. You're going to be unable to stay focused reading the Word looking for Christ in the word. And you're going to think, I must not really be a Christian because this isn't fun. I don't believe, I don't believe that it felt great for Abraham to entrust Ishmael to the Lord in the wilderness. But you'll see by the time we get to chapter 22 that Abraham's faith and his joy in the Lord's promises has so increased that we see true trust in the Lord. He has entrusted Ishmael to the Lord, and in chapter 22, he's going to entrust Isaac to the Lord as well. Chapter 22, what we're going to look at next week, would not make any sense if Abraham still had his just-in-case plan. He's like, yeah, sure, I'll give you Isaac. I still have Ishmael. He has to get rid of Ishmael first in order to embrace the reality of who Isaac is and what Isaac means for the future of the church. 
Well, Abraham sends the boy and his mother into the wilderness as the Lord commanded him. And what happens there? Well, just as God waited until Abraham and Sarah were as good as dead to fulfill his promises to them, he also waits until Ishmael is as good as dead to fulfill his promise to Ishmael. God is faithful to his promises, and he's faithful to Ishmael. And so there's a lesson here for Hagar. The last time... She, in chapter 16, was banished out into the wilderness. The angel of the Lord came to her, comforted her, promised her he would provide for the child in her womb, and the child who God said to name Ishmael. Now, Ishmael means God hears. So this time, it's kind of interesting, when he speaks to her from heaven, he says in verse 17, Do not fear, I have heard God hears. Ishmael. He's telling her something massively important. The reason she doesn't have to fear is because of who God is. He is the God who hears. And he's given her this child to remind her of that. And just as it's always true that the promises of God bring laughter, Isaac, it's also true that God always hears, Ishmael. These names are teaching us, aren't they? So even though Hagar has separated herself so far from the boy that she can't hear him dying under the bush, God does hear him because God hears. And God responds even to Hagar and Ishmael. Even the Justin cases are cared for by God. And then God proves that he hasn't changed. He doesn't change. He's trustworthy to Hagar and Ishmael because he hasn't changed his opinion about this boy from chapter 16 onward. Just as he promised in chapter 16 to make a great nation out of the boy, so he promises again in chapter 21. And I believe verse 19 then brings it all back together, back to Christ. Let me show you. Wow, I see it was a well in the desert. Let me show you. Look at verse 19 again. Then God opened her eyes. Now, what does that mean in Genesis? When God opens eyes, he is showing a greater reality. When God opened Abraham's eyes and Abraham looked out, he saw the promised land promised to him. When God opened his eyes, when the three visitors were were coming to him, Abraham was able to see them as the Lord coming to him. So the last time Hagar met the Lord... She called him El Roy, which means the God who sees. This time, God is opening her eyes. There's, there's so much just good literature here. <laughs> this time, she, she saw the Lord last time. This time, God is opening her eyes. And when God opens eyes, he's allowing them to see that greater reality. And she sees, with these newly opened eyes, a well of water in the desert. Now, a well in the desert is no small thing in the scriptures. This is a miracle from the Lord, certainly. He's he's uniquely providing for this child because of his promise to Abraham. But there's a greater reality here. When the child of the promise comes, when the Christ comes, the offspring of Abraham, Isaiah says he will give water in the wilderness. And because of that, the wild beasts 
will honor him. Let me read for you Isaiah 43. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Now Ishmael, in chapter 16, was to be called a wild donkey of a man, a wild animal, a wild beast. And from the Ishmaelites will come a people who will constantly be a problem for Israel. But when the Christ comes, when the fullness of time comes, and God sends forth his son, born of woman, the offspring of Abraham, through Isaac, he will be a blessing to the nations. This promised Christ through Isaac will be a blessing to the nations, all of the nations, including the Ishmaelites. He will be to them, through the Spirit, water in the wilderness. And they will praise him and honor him as their king. And so when the Lord opens Hagar's eyes, our eyes should be open as well to Christ, the living water in the wilderness, who will also provide for Ishmael and his family. The whole Bible reality that Christ will come for the nations is concealed here in God's concern for Hagar and Ishmael. Abraham and Sarah's just-in-case backup plan in the long run is redeemed by God's promise. And we have seen that again and again and again, haven't we? That what man means for evil, God means for good. Again and again and again. Why is that true? Because God is faithful. God is faithful. And we can take joy in him. Let's pray.